Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for December 12, 2022. Here's today's rundown. United Health Group is the largest health insurance company in the world at $235 billion. Optum, a subsidiary of United Health, has acquired 18 companies, having spent more than $30 billion on acquisitions. Are health insurance companies too big to fail? Addressing that question today, our lead story is Dr. Geraldine Morrissey. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Adam Brenman, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report and begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, I've always disliked the last Monitor Monday of the year. And it's a surefire way to ensure the rest of December will be full of regulatory news that I cannot share with all the listeners. But today's exciting. I get to announce the recipients of the Hirsch's Heroes Awards for 2023. Could be 22, got my year wrong. As a reminder, this award carries with it no monetary prize and it's not recognized by any official organization. If winners mention the award to their family, they can be guaranteed a look of bewilderment. I first awarded this distinction in 2016 to recognize people who I thought made a difference in healthcare in general and in the case management and utilization compliance areas for their work. During the COVID-19 pandemic, I chose not to recognize any heroes, as every single frontline healthcare worker would have been deserving of the recognition. But the time has come to once again recognize individuals. For this year, the first winner is someone whose work I've admired for many years and who I've mentioned on Monitor Monday many times. That is Judith Stein, the Executive Director of the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Now, unlike pseudo-advocacy organizations like AARP, the Center for Medicare Advocacy does not sell anything, doesn't partner with insurance companies or Medicare Advantage plans or Medicare medical suppliers to make money. As a result, everything they do is to advocate for Medicare beneficiaries. If you've heard of the GIMO settlement on continuing therapy to prevent loss of function, that was Judith Stein. The lawsuit to get observation days to count towards three days for SNF, that's Judith Stein. And I could go on and on, but instead urge you to look at the many resources on their webpage, medicareadvocacy.org. Next up is actually two doctors, Dr. Angela Wayans, a pediatric hematologist from Michigan Medicine, and Dr. Tatiana Prowell, an oncologist at Johns Hopkins. But I'm recognizing them not for their medical work, but from a Twitter challenge they started in 2020 called Healthcare Workers Versus Hunger. For one week each year, they get people from all over the country to donate to their local food banks and tag the donation with a team with catchy names like resuscitators and hemunculus. This creates a fun competition amongst medical personnel with a noble cause. And this year, they were responsible for over $810,000 in donations in one week. Proudly, the physician advisor team placed eighth. We all know the toll of food insecurity, and this effort by these two doctors is amazing. Finally, I want to recognize Anuja Mola. 
Dr. Mola is a senior physician advisor from Christiana Care in Delaware. She's also on the board of directors at the American College of Physician Advisors and the chair of the ACPA Observation Committee. She just had an article on denials published in the Journal of the Case Management Society of America. And if that's not enough, she's also an award-winning author of a series of children's books to help develop bilingual conversational skills. Keep your eyes out for Dr. Mola. She is truly a rising star. Thank you for all four of these people. You truly are my heroes. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Solutions, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday, and congratulations to the four of you who have been named as Hirsch's heroes. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today I'm going to tell a story about a hospital in Tennessee that underwent an audit and the MAC determined that the hospital owed over $5 million. The hospital challenged both the OIG's contractor's sampling methodology and its determinations on specific claims by requesting a hearing before an ALJ. The decision was published in September 2022, and the reason that I want to make you aware of this case is because there have been numerous Medicare provider appeals unsuccessfully challenging the extrapolations and the ALJs upholding the extrapolation. In this case, the ALJ found the extrapolation in error, the council reversed the ALJ on its own motion, and the district court reaffirmed the ALJ, saying that the extrapolation was faulty. And whenever good case law is published, we want to analyze the court's reasoning so that we as attorneys can replicate those winning arguments. One of the main reasons that the district court agreed that the extrapolation was faulty was because no testimony supporting the OIG's contractor's extrapolation process or implementation of its statistical sampling methodology were submitted to that hearing that occurred in June of 2020. And the contractor did not appear. It's that mundane scene with an ALJ level appeal and the auditor failing to appear to prove the audit's veracity. In addition to finding that additional claims satisfied Medicare coverage and payment requirements, the ALJ also found that OIG's statistical extrapolation process did not comply with 1893 of the Social Security Act, nor with the Medicare provider uh, manual. The ALJ held that HHS policy requires that the OIG's audit must be able to be recreated and that as the audit sampling frame utilized data from outside of the audit, the audit could not be recreated. The council subsequently reviewed the ALJ's decision on its own motion and reversed that decision, in part finding that the ALJ's determination that the sampling process was invalid as an error of law. The council then concluded that the OIG's contractor's statistical extrapolation met all applicable Medicare legal and regulatory requirements. The hospital appealed to the federal district court. The district court's review consists of whether, in light of the record as a whole, the secretary's determination is supported by, quote-unquote, 
substantial evidence. And according to the court, the hospital amply demonstrated that the council did not have the authority to overturn the decision of the ALJ on its own motion review. Accordingly, the hospital's motion for summary judgment was granted and the extrapolation was thrown out. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about eight minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Adam Brenman, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and Dr. Geraldine Morrissey, who's standing by to report our lead story, Too Big to Fail. It's Monday, it's December the 12th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. Could your facility be vulnerable for a costly audit? How can you prepare and make sure that your defenses are up? During an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel will explain in simple, easy-to-understand language the peril of overpayment audits. She will also describe your legal defenses. You need to be ready for the audits. They're coming, and we're here to help. Register now to attend Morning for Acute Care Hospitals. You're a target for overpayment audits. Register at the RAC Monitor store or by clicking the link. Experience this important on-demand webcast. Warning for acute care hospitals, you're a target for overpayment audits. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning at the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's writing a bad refund letter. Now, given that you listen to this broadcast, it's a virtual inevitability that you will need to send money back to an insurer at some point, and there are definitely right and wrong ways to do it. In fact, a poorly done refund letter can make you regret the decision to do the right thing. So the first question is who should send the letter? While I strongly recommend having counsel draft the letter, I feel equally strongly that the signatory on the letter should be a non-lawyer. Lawyers scare people and draw attention, so they shouldn't pop up in the letter. I can think of only one exception. In situations where the client is refunding money, but I believe that the refund isn't required, I like to sign the letter because it's less braggy and more effective when an outsider touts your good deeds. I open every letter with, as part of our ongoing compliance process. Whether you have a thriving compliance plan or not, if you're refunding money, I think it's fair to consider it part of the compliance process. Now, a good overpayment letter is clear and concise. It describes the refund concretely, explaining the claims involved and how the error occurred. It's worth taking the time to perfect the wording. Consider the difference in the following two approaches to a refund for missing office notes. First, you could go with, one of our physicians fraudulently upcoded for her services. Or you could say, We've been unable to locate documentation to support some services, and we're choosing to refund for those claims. Those two sentences are radically different. The first includes an admission. If the government followed up on the letter by seeking penalties, the wording would make it, um, the defense exponentially more complicated. The second letter, by contrast, leaves a wide range of defenses available. I'm very fond of using phrases like, we would be more comfortable defending, or we are choosing not to bill for these services. Another option is, we've identified possible issues with. I studiously avoid using the word overpayment, instead referring to refunds. We're choosing to return money rather than admitting we billed incorrectly. 
I also work to make certain that any factual representations in the letter are entirely accurate. Because experience has taught me uh, that things that I often believe to be true might be incorrect, I try to keep as many facts or keep the factual representations to a minimum to minimize my errors. Because so many of my clients have had the same issue pop up more than once, I've learned not to promise that the error has been corrected. Finally, there's one phrase that may seem harmless, but that has tremendous implications. Simply saying, our attorney told us, might constitute waiver of the attorney-client privilege. Studiously avoid any reference to opinions from legal counsel. The bottom line is that a poorly drafted refund letter can really hurt you. Next year, we'll talk about ways in which a well-drafted refund letter can help. Now, when it comes to songs, I probably should have gone with Bonnie Tyler's We Need a Hero for Ron, or for uh, Dr. Morrissey, a Smith song. But if you're writing a refund letter, it's very possible that you're whistling, then it works. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. As you do so, draft carefully. Don't let the mistake that resulted in the refund be compounded by inadvertent admissions. Chuck, before I turn it back to you, I want to wish you and my fellow panelists and all of our listeners a great end to 2022. And we'll talk again next year. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. And uh, Happy New Year to you as well, David. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Tiffany, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Good morning, everyone, and happy close to our 2022 year. I'm looking forward to seeing you all and hearing from you next year. Last week, I asked our listeners if they knew their top avoidable day reason and if they were willing to chime in with some answers during our live chat segment. Today, I'm happy to follow up on many of the responses that I received. The responses align with three main categories, delays related to transitions to a next facility, whether it be skilled or psychiatric, delays related to family decisions making for their loved ones in the hospital and social factors, and delays related to internal processes, such as not having MRI services on weekends or limitations with consultating specialists. Although there is not enough time in my segment to review all the specifics, I think it is important to note that attribution matters, and the only way to solve these problems is to ensure you are capturing enough detail to do something with the information. So when it comes up to post-acute authorizations, this is a lot of the, the ones that came in, I would suggest a deeper look. So is the delay related to in, the insurance company being slow in their process as reported by the SNF? Or has the skilled nursing facility just told you that is the reason when it is an internal process on their part? The SNF may only look at the admission packets once a day, or are they sending out for authorization requests to another department that's likely centralized somewhere in the country and in a different time zone? Or maybe they're telling you this because of the payer, but the insurance is called and you confirm that nothing has even been received from the payer. 
What is later discovered may be that the SNF accepted the referral under payer authorization, quote unquote, but really does not have a bed available. And they just did not want to lose the referral to another facility. We've seen it all. Lots of examples. So dig deep, get to the root of the problem. Maybe the case manager is not proactively planning for SNF with evidence, with clear evidence that the patient meets medical necessity for such placement. Once the source is evaluated, move into action. If one can discern the cause is, say, the payer, request adjustments in the contract to approve these delays or request additional per diem payments while patient sits in the hospital. If it is the SNF, then call this to their attention and discuss with their leadership how you can establish a more streamlined referral process to guarantee a smooth patient transition. If it's because of the case management team, it may be time to complete more training or look at a different process improvement efforts internally. With all that, I would like to ask our listeners, are there efforts at your hospital to decrease your avoidable days? Yes, no, unsure, and does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. And a reminder, you're listening to Monitor Money, where the time is about 17 and a half minutes after the top of the hour in your time zone. Stand by, everybody. It's that time of year, holiday time. And the folks at MedLearn Publishing are wishing you and yours a happy holiday season. Plus, the MedLearn Publishing Holiday Gratitude Sale is coming up. That's right. The MedLearn Publishing Holiday Sale is here from December 15th to December 23rd. Save 25% on all Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing educational products. That's a special 25% holiday discount. Use code TY2022 at checkout to receive this offer. This discount is not available on packages, memberships, reduced items, or resale. Thank you, and happy holidays from MedLearn Publishing. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. And once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. Let's take a look at our results. I asked, are there efforts at your hospital to decrease your avoidable days? And I'm happy to report that it looks like about 64% of our listeners said yes, they are actively working on trying to decrease their avoidable days and address these issues. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks for your survey, Tiffany, very much. Up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Adam Brenman. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Adam Bredman. Thanks very much, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Uh, prior authorization, which requires healthcare providers to get approval from insurers before giving certain treatments to patients, has been long hailed as extremely burdensome to physicians, even causing delays in patient care. While health plans say the process is essential to curb unnecessary or wasteful healthcare spending, However, it should come as little surprise that payers and providers both came out in support of a newly proposed rule from CMS last week on the very issue. 
The rule recommends requirements to improve and modernize the prior authorization process by mandating the process be electronic, shortening timeframes for certain payers to respond to requests, and establishing policies to make the process more efficient and transparent. AHIP, the National Association Representing Health Plans, the American Hospital Association, the Better Medicare Alliance, and multiple provider groups, including MGMA, have all commended CMS for a proposal they consider a positive step forward for both medical groups and the patients they treat, as well as for incenting health plans, providers, and facilities to work together for a better patient-clinician experience. Specifically, the rule proposes implementing a standard application programming interface. This API is an HL7 FHIR standard to support electronic prior authorization. The rule also proposes requiring certain payers to include a specific reason when denying requests, publicly reporting certain prior authorization metrics, sending decisions within 72 hours for expedited requests, and seven calendar days for standard requests, twice as fast as current Medicare Advantage response time limits, and adding a new electronic prior authorization measure for hospitals and critical access hospitals under MIPS for clinicians. The inclusion of Medicare Advantage plans in particular was applauded by stakeholders as, CMA, as HHS excuse me, recently reported that some MA plans routinely denied prior authorization requests, even though such requests met Medicare coverage rules. According to CMS, the efficiencies in the proposed rule would save physicians and hospitals $15 billion over 10 years. Meanwhile, one of the main questions to watch as the rule is refined and finalized is whether stakeholders will encourage and support the use of new technology in an HL7-based FHIR API as opposed to more familiar technologies such as 835 electronic remittance or X12 for interoperability of electronic transactions. Interestingly, at a health IT-based conference I attended last month, payer, provider, and vendor attendees agreed that while a FHIR API is more modern and easier to use between systems, Familiarity with X12 kept it the preferred method of data exchange and interchange. Where this part of the discussion goes regarding these competing options is anyone's guess. So, if you've got thoughts on what CMS should do with this rule or how it should look in the end, now is the time to voice your opinion. The public and stakeholders can submit comments on the proposed prior authorization rule until March 13th of next year. Thanks, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Adam, very much. That was Adam Brennan. Adam is a federal legislative analyst for Zealous. Are health insurance companies too big to fail? The United Health Group covering more than 55 million lives and with a market cap of about $235 billion? Well, you begin to wonder. And then there's Optum. It's a subsidiary of United, and they spent $30 billion on acquisitions of 18 companies. So the question remains, are they too big to fail? Here now to report our lead story is Dr. Geraldine Morrissey. And good morning, Dr. Morrissey. What is going on here? Good morning, Chuck. Well, interestingly, last quarter, United Health Group beat Wall Street expectations with a revenue of almost $81 billion, up 12% year over year. Meanwhile, Optum's revenue grew 17% year over year to a whopping $46 billion. 
The controversial acquisition of Change Healthcare is expected to bring about $800 million in revenue to Optum in the fourth quarter of 2022 alone. And United Health Group is projecting its 2023 revenue will be in the neighborhood of about $360 billion. Now, while United Health Group is the nation's largest health insurer by revenue, Optum is the fastest growing subsidiary of United Health Group, and it has a voracious appetite for acquisitions, investments, and strategic partnerships. Now, long before the discourse around the acquisition of Change Healthcare, Optum had been building a comprehensive healthcare system that spans every corner of healthcare delivery and insurance. Optum has spent, as you said, over $30 billion on acquisitions. In fact, acquisitions have been a key driver in the growth of the United Health Group empire. Now, a review of acquisitions from 2013 to 2020 will reveal the depth and the breadth of their diversity. But today, we're going to focus on acquisitions that were happening in parallel to the change healthcare discourse that was going on. The acquisitions demonstrate ongoing diversification into behavioral health, care coordination, remote patient monitoring, value-based care, and virtual care. Let's take a look at the acquisition of Landmark Health in 2021. Landmark Health is an in-home medical care company focused on the sickest and frailest populations. Landmark's care teams currently provide services in 17 states. Landmark helps curb costs by reducing avoidable ER visits and hospitalizations. As the pandemic disrupted traditional in-person delivery of care, the acquisition of Landmark reinforces Optum's goal of delivering more and more health services in the home, which ultimately bolsters United Health's payer division. Another recent acquisition is LHC Group in 2022. LHC Group is one of the nation's largest home health and hospice companies providing 12 million in home interventions to 500,000 patients annually. LHC has 557 home health locations, 170 hospice locations, and joint venture partnerships with 435 hospitals and health systems in 37 states. Like Landmark Health, the acquisition of LHC Group expands the role of home services as alternatives to hospitals and nursing homes, and ultimately supports the payer division of United. LHC will likely be integrated into provider networks and health plans, especially Medicare Advantage plans, where home health utilization is part of value-based care and costs are increasingly scrutinized. Next, Refresh Mental Health was acquired in 2022. Refresh operates a network of 300 outpatient mental health, substance abuse, and eating disorder clinics across 37 states. The acquisition of Refresh Mental Health gives Optum access to the growing behavioral health sector, which has seen an increased demand since the onset of the pandemic. And finally, the acquisition of an international software and solutions company out of the United Kingdom, Emmis, rounds out the recent interesting acquisitions. Now, the most recent acquisitions are more than the sum of their parts, and not only demonstrate diversity and growth, but also the synergies created between the payer and the provider divisions. And lastly, with steady and methodical position, OptumCare has continued to march forward in its acquisition of healthcare providers and clinics. 
United Health Group remains the largest employer of physicians in the country, with 60,000 doctors in 2,000 locations across the nation, serving over 20 million patients. That's probably about a third of the patients out there. The 2022 provider group acquisitions include, but are not limited to, Atrius Health in Massachusetts, Kelsey Siebold in Houston, Texas, and Caremount Medical in New York State, New Jersey, and Connecticut. There's so much there to unpack, Chuck, but at the end of the day, United Health Group's progress toward building a closed end-to-end continuum of care has real implications for hospitals and has the ability to create seismic changes in the future healthcare landscape. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Morrissey. That was Dr. Geraldine Morrissey. Dr. Morrissey is a Senior Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Affairs for Versalis Health. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in while we have been on the air. You bet. So Denise asked a great one, which is, for refunds, would the phrase, during an internal audit, we found the following be harmful? And my answer is that actually, I don't know if I use harmful, but I would avoid the word audit. I learned this the hard way. When you call something an audit, the government, A, assumes it's all scientific, uh, and they put more weight on it. Uh, and and Basically, they expect you, I don't know, I, I call things reviews. It gives you more flexibility. So I have banished the word audit from my vocabulary. I know that is unusual, but I strongly encourage you to do the same. And then Christine has got a question about the two midnight rule. And in particular, if a Medicare patient is admitted as an inpatient and they're only in for one night before they go to an unexpected rehab visit, should the person still be admitted? The transition sometimes happens very quickly, and it wasn't anticipated. I will offer a thought and then turn it over to Ron. My thought is, remember, the two-midnight rule is all about expectations. What happens doesn't matter. Ron? And I also think it's important to know that during the waiver period with the public health emergency, inpatient rehab is allowed to take care of acute sick patients. So I'd say yes. Without knowing the details of the case, Bill is inpatient. Uh, so Ron makes a very important part about the waiver, but remember, expectation and not results control the two-midnight rule. So that's our last question of 2022, Chuck, and I turn it back to you. Thank you, David, and thank you, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Adam Brenman, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, whom you also just heard, Timothy Ferguson, Dr. Geraldine Morrissey, who reported our lead story, and remember, folks, you can listen to all the monitor broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to listen to me tomorrow on Talk to Tuesday. We're going to be reporting on the dilemma of telehealth. And by the way, as you might have heard, this is the last broadcast of Monitor Monday for 2022. But we're going to be back in January 9th. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and monitor buddy have a wonderful holiday everybody and we'll see you on the radio right back here next year monitor monday is a presentation of rack monitor